Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Mark Haddon, who is the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. So I interviewed Mark up in Oxford. It was part of a, a double build afternoon. I went to see him after I'd seen Hermione Lee. He was incredibly gracious, a really nice man, um, having uh, achieved an enormous level of success, but very humble and very kind. And we had a really fascinating conversation um, dating from his early career as a struggling book editor through to global stardom. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Enjoy. So I'm here in Oxford uh, with Mark Haddon uh, in his studio come basement, would this be? Yeah, yeah. I think lower ground floor is what estate agents would call it. Right, okay. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking to the podcast. Could we start by talking a bit about your, your early life and where your original interest in in writing, but I suppose also in illustrating, came from? Um, I have a very poor memory, and it's quite hard to dig back that far. I came from a very unbookish family. So both my parents came from working-class backgrounds, but my father was very ambitious and successful, and having failed all his exams at school, returned to, to college later and trained as an architect because he was... He was he was, he was a good draftsman. He was a, he was a good artist. And I, I certainly inherited that interest and hopefully a little bit of that skill from him. So I was always interested in drawing and I've always drawn. Since, and where since, were you growing up? Uh, this is in Northampton. Okay. You know, um, feels slightly like, I was going to say, it's the middle of everywhere, but it's also the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I felt very... Obviously, I didn't realise it at the time now, but certainly when I go back now, it feels a long way away from anywhere that's connected to the rest of the universe. Right. Um, the writing, it took a long time to come, in fact, that, that desire to write. What I always felt from very early on was the need to find something bigger, something different, some kind of some kind of hole through which I could escape. Mm-hmm. I remember that very vividly. Um, and it was it was science which provided that, first of all. Okay. I, I read almost no fiction as a child and had no real interest in it. But I, I wolfed down books about science. Um, I had a book, which I still possess even now, which was a kind of talismanic text for me called Origins of the Universe by Albert H. Hinklebein. Okay. Uh, to which I'm so attached that it actually has a sort of minor role in Curious Incident. Okay. And in fact, in fact, the physical book actually appears on stage. <laughs> um, and in that book, alongside many scientific facts, which are now untrue, it's because it's so old, there was a little medieval woodcut. Um, it was a, actually, no, it was, it was a late, it was, in fact, it turned to be late. It was a Renaissance woodcut. And it was a man who'd walked away from a little sort of alpine town with the sun above it. And he'd reached the the edge of a field and he'd butted up against the very lowest of the celestial spheres and he's poked his head through a hole in the first the lowest celestial sphere and he can see the fire and the clouds and the wheels all behind it and I always thought that was me I was always trying to get far away from this little town find the celestial sphere and stick my head through it and see what was actually happening on the other side Um, and science provided me with that sense of escape and insight, you know, a mixture of answers to problems um, which were bugging you, but also a sense of bigger problems and greater mysteries which sort of drew you on. And it wasn't until I was, I think, 
14 or 15 that we were first given poetry to read at school I think for my O level in English as 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 it was I have a very vivid memory of being given two books one was um, the selected poetry of R.S. Thomas Mm -hmm. and the other one was a very ghoulish anthology called Conflict and Compassion Wow, which okay. which I think it was designed to, to, to put children in therapy for many years <laughs> afterwards. It was a selection of poems separated into sections which dealt with horrific road accidents, um, the shallowness of the modern financial society, racism, illness, uh, mental illness and mental handicap, and nuclear war. Right, OK. Um, and some of the poems were profoundly upsetting, but also the, some of them have... So similar time about you know what was that graphic novel about the nuclear war where people fall out or something like that where it's a nice couple end up dying terribly of radiation sickness. Yes, there was a Raymond Briggs one, wasn't yeah. there? Called I think was it Ethel and Ernest. I think I have the names wrong, but yeah. yes. Um, but I remember poems that, for example, I think it was Ed, Edwin Muir's Strange Horses, which, like the opening poem in the R.S. Thomas, which is called A Peasant, both those poems. I've lit up something inside my head which okay. hadn't been hadn't been lit up before and I think quite literally on that afternoon my my life started to change how old were you at this point 14 or 15 right and I realized that something I've been looking for in science was more easily accessible right via literature and you then studied English as an undergrad and you also did a masters after that is that right well i i kept my fingers in several pies at the same time i'm okay. a levels at school i did i managed to do further maths and english in the same year an unusual combination an unusual combination and tactically rather brilliant i realize in retrospect because whichever interview you go to having done those two a levels uh the expert who's interviewing you who is either a mathematician or an english academic is unnaturally impressed by the fact that you know anything about the other subject. Um, and I think you get a lot of very unwarranted points for being someone who can read poetry but do maths. Right. Okay. Or who can do maths but also read poetry. I think it's rather unjustified, but it, I think it helped me get, get where I got to. And can we talk about how you get then from, from doing English University to this book we have here, Gilbert's Gobstopper, <laughs> your, uh, your breakout text? My breakout text... Um, We'll put this in the show notes. Okay. Is it still in print? It is not still in print. It's. It's. I think you can get it for, for vast amounts of money uh, uh, on eBay or from Abe Books. Okay. It happened because, and this is me looking back in retrospect, trying to unpick what I was doing. Just to to explain, it's a it's a children's book, and it is. on the cover is that Gilbert. It is. It's a it's a it's a picture book. Uh, which I illustrated myself, so it's going to be sort of um, 32 pages, very brightly coloured. When I flick through it now, what I see mostly is the fact that I used um, a terrible, terrible kind of Winsor & Newton ink, which is is one of the worst things to to colour large areas with, because it sets, it has shellac in it, and it sets with a horrible, uh, unlike watercolour, it sets very hard. So once you put one layer down, you can't put any other layer Shellac down. Shellac as in the stuff that goes in nail Yes, yeah, so you can actually, if you look at some of the originals, you can see a hard, shiny surface on top of some of the colours. And also I wasn't, I just wasn't very good at drawing at the time. And I looked through and I realised that I can't really do perspective. Everything is seen okay. from side on. I hope it gives the whole work a kind of naive charm, which sometimes <laughs> works in children's books. Uh, 
other pages I open and I think that's just not very good at all. How did you decide that you wanted to write a children's book and what were the mechanics of... of well, I think, I think it's part of a larger story of how I became a writer. I think on some, uh, some not very conscious level, I did want to be a writer from the moment I discovered how exciting reading could be. But it was not a family in which people read many books and it was certainly not, it was a family where no one had gone to university and it was certainly not a family that could even really conceive of what the job of being a writer might be. So to but you, actually, went, you went to, to a public school. For, how did that come? I did, come which was a very odd experience because my I, I went because my father had made enough money to send me there. Okay. Um, and I think it was something that he would have wanted to do if if, if his life um, if if he'd come from a different kind of family, I have a feeling I was going there on his behalf. Yeah. So, were you at school with Stephen Fry? No, he was it. expelled from the same yeah. school before I got there. So I had a rather split life in which I was at a public school, which obviously cost quite a lot of money, and you know, um, contact sports and cold showers. Um, as, as public schools were meant to be in that time. Yeah. But, and, but at the same time, I'd, I'd spend some time in my grandparents' house. My, my paternal grandparents worked in a, a boot factory and a bed factory, respectively. Okay. And my other, my maternal grandparents were respectively a secretary and a travelling glove salesman. So I wasn't, I wasn't wholly at ease yeah. in that boarding school. Um, and then going back to the, the gestation of Gilbert. So the gestation of the book. I wanted to be a writer in, on some level. I knew I couldn't... It was bad enough admitting the need to be a writer. Uh, that was grandiose and pretentious. The need to be a novelist, which I think lay at the heart of that desire, was even more grandiose and pretentious. And I couldn't quite bring myself to, to come out in that respect. And without wishing to... Um, undervalue the writing and reading of children's books in my mind at the time I think I thought of children's books as a stepping stone yeah. to to writing for adults and, and and a stepping stone which is relatively accessible for me as well because I was drawing yeah. all the time and I thought I could combine those two things and was the children's book world very different then to how it is now well I don't know I mean, writers are often asked about the, the world of books that they're <laughs> That they're involved in, whereas most writers I know have no experience. It isn't a world for them. You know, yeah. the world of books for most people is a lot of individual uh, rooms in which people sit for two, three, four years writing a book. Yeah. And I'm not even sure the world of books as a as a thing exists for many yeah. people. Um, but was but this, just, this but just was, to go back a bit, yeah. there, there was something I wanted to say before that, which was that I was helped into writing or pushed into writing by my inability to do any other kind of job i okay. think that's people often ask me what particularly young people who want to write saying what are the what are the necessary qualifications and for me it was the fact that i couldn't do anything else i have a profound dislike of going to the same place every day and being told what to do yeah. by other people and i think the longest i ever held down any kind of job was six weeks okay before i before i I remember what it was. It was in a cycle couriers in Edgware. And I, after six weeks, I thought, I cannot bear this any longer. I rang up, pretended I'd fallen off my bike and broken a leg, so I couldn't go in. Okay. So I realised that, in a way, that was a burning of bridges. Being a writer is a 
preposterously inadvisable way of earning a living. Yeah. And I think I allowed myself to be in the position where it was one of a very small number of choices. Okay. Um, so how old are you when Gilbert emerges? I have a very poor memory. I, I may have to actually open the front of the book <laughs> to look at the date. Which can you is remember probably, the year you were born? I can, I can remember the, okay. the, the, the So 1987. So I was 25 at the time. Okay. It, it was, this was preceded by and helped by the fact that I was working as an illustrator for magazines, right. uh, illustrator and cartoonist for a range of magazines in London, um, from CND magazine to The Spectator okay. and everything in between. Um, the Banker... I think there were some things for the Sunday Telegraph. I did little pen portraits for birthday columns. Right. You don't see them so much anymore, but there'll be, you know, this week's famous birthdays and a, and a, and a cartoon of that person. Um, and again, that, that, that was a job that I, that I enjoyed doing. I could sit at home. Um, this was, of course, pre-internet. You, you'd get black and white photos sent round with a motorcycle courier of yeah. said person to do the portrait. And the motorcycle courier would turn up the next morning to take away your, your illustrations. So my desire to write, combined with this job I already had as an illustrator, which made writing and illustrating children's picture books a kind of a natural place to start. Yeah. How did you get a publisher for the beginning? And did you have an agent? How did it work? Um, I simply submitted the book to um, a range of publishers. I'm trying to cast my mind back now because I think we had to rely on colour Xeroxes at the time, which were... Expensive. Expensive and extremely exotic and rather sophisticated. Um, I used the same method I'd used... For our younger listeners, Xerox is a photocopier. (laughs) Yes. Um, I had... um, I used the same method I'd used with illustration. So, because I had never gone to art college, never studied design, I didn't have any entree into that world, I would um, copy examples of my work and send it to, say, 50 magazines. Mm -hmm. Every time someone got back to me saying, we liked it, but no, thank you, I would then send it off to another magazine. So I always knew there were a a lot of irons in the fire. Um, And I knew that 49 people would say no and one person would say yes and some of those people who said yes stuck with me for a very long time yeah. I mean I owe I owe a huge amount to the nursing times <laughs> for whom I have a very very um, very fond feelings I mean I had a I had a long running um, cartoon strip with them called right. St Optouts which was which was written in the early days of the marketization of the NHS okay. it was meant to be sort of rather broad brush pythonic parody of what was happening in the NHS Predictably, almost every ridiculous thing I, I suggested in the narrative then took place. Then, then took place, and this was this was during uh, Margaret Thatcher's okay. uh, prime ministership. And you know, it's been it's been downhill ever since. And f- following the the first book, there, you how did how did things develop with your with your illustration and your writing over the next next decade? I, w- I had I had two lives. Um, I was. I, never, I was never very successful as a children's writer and illustrator, but I had a, a steady stream of books which were published, mostly illustrated by myself, some illustrated by other people, and on, on occasions I illustrated a couple of other people's books. At the same time, I had a relentless hunger to be writing adult novels, combined with a, 
a shocking inability to do so. Okay. I curious incident was, I think, the sixth or the seventh adult novel I'd written. That you'd published? Or that you'd no, 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 no. The, 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 I think I'd written five complete novels okay. and thrown them away. That, 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 that was entirely justified. They were absolutely dreadful. I think yeah. one of the first ones I wrote, called The Blue Guitar Murders, of which I can really only remember the title, ought almost to be published as a dire warning to young men who think they're rather clever and want to write okay. uh, for fear that they go down this path. It was dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Could you give a brief synopsis? It was a it was a sort of meta literary detective fiction kind of concoction. It sounds brilliant. <laughs> it's <laughs> I think in my head it was a masterpiece, and on paper it was um, it was a car crash. And it, and indeed, last year I was very very pleased when someone I hadn't I'd been out of touch with for many many years got back in touch. They were living in uh, Mallorca now, and they they were very pleased to say that they had a. Uh, a typescript of this novel okay. and I had to beg and plead for them to send it to me so that it could be suppressed could be suppressed <laughs> and I, I earnestly hope there are no copies out there and during during these uh, these sort of wilderness years or as you say were you were you making a living from your work were you able to I was it? scraping scraping through uh, you were living in London I was living in London living in a shared house um Yes, a bit of children's books, a bit of illustrating. Uh, yes, I didn't have mu- didn't have much money at all. Could you tell me about Agent Z? Ah, uh, yes, a series of children's children's books I wrote, which also still quite quite dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, it's the only time I've really written a series of books, um, and again they were they started with um, stories my grandfather used to tell me about practical jokes that he used to play when he when he was young, okay. either at his boot factory or in the army or in, or in around Northampton. Um, I mean, I vividly remember a story he told me about standing next to a post box in the market square in Northampton and leaning close to the slot and saying, well, how on earth did you end up in there? <laughs> and when, he continued this fictitious conversation with this non-existent person in the post box, waited till there was a very large crowd gathered, and then he said he would slip away and get help leaving a group of people shouting into an empty post box. He had, en- he had en- endless stories of these kinds. So I, I fed these stories into a group of, you know, a group, a group of teenage boys. Um, and I, I hugely enjoyed writing them. I hugely enjoyed illustrating them as well. I illustrated the original covers. But there's a set of black and white illustrations all the way through them. They are now terribly dated. Okay. How so in the in their gender politics or in... I think it's a gender politics. It's kind of, you know, four white boys in the provinces. Okay. I mean, m- maybe the cycle will turn and I'll, I'll read them again in 30 years and they'll feel like sort of um, pleasantly antique okay. uh, books. I don't think there's anything fundamentally toxic about them. Yeah, yeah. They just feel... They feel like a little area of the world of books which needs to be left fallow for a few years before we return to it. Okay. And then you were doing some screenwriting at this point? Well, I... Particularly for Fungus? Yes, although that came at, at the end of a series of other things that I did. That would be Fungus the Bogeyman. Fungus the Bogeyman. Yeah, yes, how, how many other funguses are there? Uh, through, a, through a meeting with various people, which I, a trail I cannot reconnect in my memory now, I, I ended up 
writing um, a couple of episodes for a, a BBC children's series called, I think, The Wild House. And as a result of that, I put forward a proposal for a children's TV series of my own called Microsoap, which was taken on as a co-production between um, the BBC and Disney. Right. And I was given the largest cheque I'd ever seen in my life. Mean, it doesn't seem so large now, but I remember a huge amount of money at the time thinking, this is extraordinary. I've, I, I've hit pay dirt. I'm, I'm, I've arrived. And then about a year later thinking, I would, I would give twice that money back if I could just not do this job. Really? Yes. It was... You were sort of show running or...? Uh, I was... What it felt like was that I was the machine that provided the words. Okay. And if they weren't right, someone would turn the crank again. And, um, like and I like would, Scott Fitzgerald in Hollywood in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. But with no sense that I was... No sense that I was um, important or that I had leverage. Okay. I, I, subsequently, I knew that if I went back into that world, if you're being treated badly, you just say, I'm just not writing anymore. And then they have to be nice to you. Okay. But I, I, I was like a hamster on a wheel through this process. So eager to, to please people. So so grateful for having had this large check after years of genteel poverty illustrated for magazines that I, that, I, that I sort of worked myself completely into the ground. In, in a system where no one was really interested in the writing. Right. I mean, I think that's... This was aired, this went. This was broadcast. Wasn't yes, it? and in fact, I, I'm odd, I'm oddly proud of it. Okay. Um, and it had it was it quite, was a drama. It was a, it was a a comedy sort of family sitcom drama. Okay. With some delightfully eccentric aspects to it. It was it was it was done on a set which wasn't a real room. All the angles were wrong. It felt like a sort of fake living room with sort of staircases at the wrong angle, right. windows at the wrong angle. Um, there were endless fantasy sequences. Joe, who was the sort of the boy, sort of at the centre of the, the story, he must be sort of eleven or twelve. He had he had sort of fantasies, as lots of kids of that age do. And we'd actually dramatise these fantasies. So each episode would involve um, large ducks or ships in a bath actually coming to life, where you'd see the captain on the ship and a okay. large yellow duck passing in the background. It had a kind of. It was of, animated. Or... No, that would that would be set up in a tiny set. Right. Um, the physicality of the set was really nice. I mean, I, lo- I love just looking at the pictures of the set. Um, it look it looks fun to have done it, and it looks it's fun to look at. Um, so it has a kind of zestiness and verve to it, which which I still think I still think works. But the experience of doing it. <clears throat> Should have put me off working in television sooner than it did. Okay. Did Fungus come before or after? Fungus came after that. Okay. Um, I loved Fungus to Bogey Man when I was a child. So, but I never, I'm not sure I ever saw the adaptation. Um, it, was, it was not great. Okay. To One explain the... to those who don't know it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a story about Fungus to Bogey Man who has to be kept poten- perpetually wet to stop himself drying That's out. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, he lives in a sort of dark greenhouse Yes, I think you may actually remember more of this than I do. The problem was, well, there were many problems. Looking back, I think it should it should never have been televised. It's a fun, Raymond Briggs's *Fungus the Bogeyman* is a is a small masterpiece, which works perfectly in the form 
wherein it was created as a sort of uh, comic-y picture book for kids. Yeah. And it's very literary. Strangely, it depends on it depends on a lot of quite sophisticated language and sophisticated jokes and puns. And it's all very, like, green, right? And it's, it's all very like... green. It's very subterranean. It's very yeah. gloomy. Um, strangely enough, we I think we realised when we were writing it, it came out... Was it the same year as Nevermind the Bollocks? And we realised it was a sort of... It was a kind of intellectual sort of sex pistols. He had a Mohican as well, bizarrely. If you look back at it now, you think... He's a sort of half-punk, half-sort of toad creature. And you think... um, And it is a sort of thinking person, slime-filled punk about it. Um, So conceptually, I think it wasn't a great idea to put it on television. Although although we had fun doing it. Um... Martin Clunes and Faye Ripley were in it. So the experience of being on set was, in fact, quite good fun in a way that Microsoft hadn't been. The problem was... And it, again, it was live action. It wasn't... It was live action, live action yes. Um, well, there was a bit of CGI in it as well. It was scuppered, I think, by the point at which uh, CGI technology sat at that moment. Yeah. I mean, we take it for granted now... Um, that we can CGI anything. You know, your actor dies in the film, no problem whatsoever. You want something splashing into a tank of water, that's no problem. Well, Finding, ne- Finding Nemo was, um, from an industry viewpoint, a celebration of the fact that they could finally do water. <laughs> in the same way that Monsters, Inc. was, in a sense, from an industry standpoint, a celebration of the fact they could do fur. Really? Okay. Yes. Um and there were lots of little milestones in CGI, uh, which they learned how to do things which were previously very, very difficult. Yeah. And it's usually about um, the text- texture, textured right? surfaces and complex Fluid random mo- movements. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when we were doing fungus, <laughs> no one could do fur or water. So, both was, of which were pretty pivotal to the absolutely to the pivotal. I mean, I really do think they should have just filmed the whole thing in vat, vats of mud. Um, and did you, during your your sort of years of struggle, as it were, did you ever... I think, think you're glamorising about... a little too much. Okay. <laughs> did you ever think about throwing in the towel? Um, Getting a real job or, you know, all that kind no, of thing? No, and I think... And this is why it was so important to me to feel that I was incapable of doing another job. Okay. Because... It is really hard writing five novels, trying to maintain the belief that you are on some level of genius because you need that crazy you need that crazy self belief to carry you through because yeah. because you're trying to balance it against a kind of biting self criticism. And at that time, how do you think you were perceived by your friends or your family and stuff like that? Um <laughs> Oh, I'm, st- I'm, I'm. I have a feeling my mother still doesn't believe I have a proper job, right. even even now. Um, I mean, I came from a background where people were meant to get solid jobs. You know, you're meant to be a doctor or a lawyer or a, um, a qu- so quantity, quantity surveyor. Quantities, somehow quantity surveyor. Su- There's no more solid job than that. Absolutely, it's a kind. It's a kind of uh, the most solid provincial job going really reliable and I very manifestly did not did not have those jobs so I think my family were skeptical slash worried 
there was no a lot of my friends at the time because I went to university at a time of it was the, I felt like the last year of sort of um what would you call it the last year of radical proce- protest in the Thatcher years before the sort of cold winds blew in and everyone started to go and work for uh, for accountants mm. and uh, management consultants um but my friends at that time went and they worked in radical bookshops. Several went into nursing um, or they went into social works. And I was surrounded by people doing doing those kind of jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I lived in a house with someone who, someone who was a nurse. Um, one person was at the BBC being a sound engineer. No one, no one was earning a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of people were moving between jobs. So in that sense, I think my situation probably looked quite quite lucky and can we then talk about curious incident yeah. the, the the gestation story for that um one I of know the you pro- must have told us a million times well in fact in fact it's, it's it's not so much that it's hard to repeat that story it's that when you talk about a subject often enough it becomes think, a story right yes you forget that forget the original mm-hmm. and i think it's true of many questions that writers get asked you get asked a question which, in truth, demands an answer about two and a half hours long. But, of course, you're pushed into something slightly soundbitey, and you don't have to repeat that soundbite very often before the honest, accurate answer kind of just, just fades away like mist. Yeah. Um, so it was, what I do know is... The, so it would have been the sixth or the seventh adult novel that I'd written. I do know that in a rather... Machiavellian way I sat down and wrote what I thought were three good openings to novels without any real sense of where they were going next and um, I showed them to Sauce my wife and said uh, so which one of these works then and she said that one definitely in fact in fact and that was curious incident. that was curious incident in fact to, to rewind a little she actually rem- remembers me writing that scene in a different room and, and laughing to myself and she said why are you laughing? I said, I've written this scene in which a dog is, is killed with a fork on a lawn and I I found it quite funny. And she said, oh, do you think real writers laugh at their own jokes as well? <laughs> a phrase we've been, we've been re- uh, digging up for many years ever since. Uh, but it's true, I didn't really feel like a real writer then. So I had so I had that opening scene. But of course, other th- I realise now that other things were feeding into it. And I think that's true of... It's true for me, and I'm sure it's true for many writers. You're asked, where does a novel come from? And you're, you're slightly, you're being herded into giving an answer which is very simple. You say, it was a story I got from my uncle, and it was an experience I had when I was travelling in Spain. But in, in my experience, it comes from 100 different sources. And it ends up being a novel because you, um, you squeeze those down and squeeze those down. And novels work when they have, when when many many roads lead you to the same place. And I read that you did more research on the inside of Swindon bus stations configuration than on autism and Asperger's and yes, things like yeah. that. Um, and fact, that you didn't. That there's no mention of of the condition in the book. No, slight mistake was not realizing that I had. Um, a good deal of say in what went on the outside of the book. I left that up to other people. Yeah. And if I'd known now, I'd have the word Asperger's appeared on the cover, 
or on the back cover. And I would, if I'd known now, I'd have said, "Can you just, can you just leave that out?" Um, because that I, that was not my intention. And in fact, to go back to talking about different sources, I found about a year ago, in an old notebook. I keep lots of. I say notebooks. They're they're full of pictures. They're scrapbooks. I keep postcards, news clippings, and in in one of those books is I guess it's an early Renaissance altarpiece. Um, three separate pictures. It's it, it's the, the nativity, the Christian nativity as we know it, with with all the bells and whistles, mm-hmm. angels, shepherds, um, uh, the baby Jesus in this sort of faux stable. And I remember seeing this and for some reason thinking, how would you explain this to someone from another planet? If someone had none of the cultural assumptions that underpin that for us, that make it instantly understandable, where would you start? And I think that lay behind my interest in in the mind of someone who saw life, all of life in that way. Mm where there were none of those, um, none of that rich cultural underpinning that, that, that gives instant summed up meaning to complex situations. So that was part of it. Another thing I stumbled on recently, I opened of all things, I opened a copy of Lectures and Conversations by Wittgenstein. And uh, as I'm sure you know, in the first few pages, <laughs> he's talking about the link between... Um, the, the meanings of certain very simple symbols. And he has, he has three smile. This is hard to believe. Wittgenstein has three smiley faces in, in lectures okay. and conversations, which I lifted almost wholesale to put into the beginning of the uh, first couple of chapters of Curious Incident, when Christopher talks about um, people's different expressions, yeah. happy, sad and puzzled, um, when he's talking about the fact he can't really understand much more than that. That's that's just lifted from Wittgenstein. And were you thinking this was a children's book or an adult's book? Adult's book. Oh, right. yeah. Well, yes. I mean, there are there are plenty of adult's books. Um, not that I wouldn't want other people to read it, more that um, it fitted into... Well, did it fit into anything? I'd, you know, it's so hard to write anything. Trying to think about a category is just hobbling yourself in one more way yeah so i just i suppose it felt to me like an adult book because i was writing it to entertain me okay um and it contained my one of the backbones was and in fact this to go back yet again this is yet another route which led to the book i have always had a tendency to lecture when i'm writing okay to um, to tell, not show, to try and explain too much. At my very worst, to try and impress the reader with how intelligent I am. I mean, this is what I think scuppered those early novels that I've thrown away. And from a creative writing point of view, Curious Incident is a radical attempt to separate the showing and the telling. Okay. Because we have alternate chapters of narrative and then... What call them sort of mini lecturettes from when in, in which Christopher tells you about interesting scientific facts, <laughs> and uh, in a way, in a way that that was me allowing myself to um, to let off pedag- pedagogic steam in a novel. If I could give myself 
chapters in which I just gave a little lecture and showed how clever I was. You just turned to the audience. The yeah, soliloquy. absolutely. Then, then when it came to the narrative, I could just do, completely show, no explanation whatsoever. So in one sense, it was, it was, it was an attempt to solve um, a problem in my writing. Yeah. It was like two parts, two bits of me. And those, those lecture parts, the interesting facts in maths and science, are a sort of slightly younger version of myself, but... And in terms of getting it published, then, you, so you hadn't published an adult novel at no. this stage? And I think one of the things that has to talk about, the world of books, unquote, again, one of the things I am aware of having changed fundamentally, partly because of Curious, but also partly because of... Um, Harry Potter, and I think actually mostly because of Philip Pullman, there was um, there was a huge gulf between the world of um, children's writing uh, and publishing and adult writing and publishing, and it was peculiar to both uh, the U.S. and over here. It doesn't it didn't exist in many other countries. I mean, for example, I, many people don't know this, but Ian McEwan became successful in Italy, because he had a very successful children's book, about which very, very few people really? know. But, but that was considered an, an entree into t to Italian readers. Right. It wasn't considered... Um, it didn't devalue his writing in any way. Whereas I think over here, 20, 25 years ago, if you... And in fact, this liter quite literally happened to me. If you are a, a writer of... And or in my case, illustrated for children, and you had some ideas to write for adults, that was considered insane. Well, yeah. the fact that you wrote well for children didn't didn't confer any anything upon you in terms of writing for. So was get it, was getting it published a struggle? Um, did you have the same agent at the time? Or no, well, what, what, it was it was a struggle, and then it became easy because I had I had a great deal of luck. My agent at the time. The, the novel before Curious Incident, which I wrote and finished, um, I took to my agent and I said, here I have, a, here I have an adult novel. Um, and your was agent was selling your children's books? Selling my children's books. So in, in that sense, working very well for me. Um, and I, I, in my own small way, was working very well for them. But they, my agent read it, clearly didn't like it. And then someone, from the other, someone else from the agency came out and took me took me to tea at the Randolph in Oxford mm. in the nicest possible way, said, Mark, I really do think you ought to stick to what you're good at. I went away with my tail between my legs, feeling very uh, um, let down. And I, I looked for another agent, and I sent this now for, justly forgotten novel to Claire Alexander, mm. uh, to Aitken Alexander. And she read it, and... Um, to my eternal gratitude, she got in touch and said, Mark, I really like this. I could get this published by a sort of small publisher somewhere, but I think you can write something better than this. Go away and take a couple of years and then, you know, stay in touch, but bring me the next book and we'll see what we can do with that. And the next book was Curious Incident. Okay. Um, There's a very similar story when we had Joan Harris on the show. Mm -hmm. She talked about just before having before Chocolat that she'd written... Yeah. A couple of novels that had had little impact, and mm. her agent sent her to talk to someone in New York. He said, "Like, need sex and car chases and mm. whatever you do, no old people and no food." And <laughs> she she went away and was like, "Fuck you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm doing this." But okay, so then you take the couple of years, you write the book, and I went back to 
to Claire. This was a very, this was probably the most peculiar time in my life. I remember several bits of it very clearly. I just finished the book and I knew that it worked for me and so asked my wife read it and it very much worked for her. She is uh, coincidentally my first best and severest reader. Okay. I think that's a great recipe. And we should say your your wife is an English academic. She is. Philosophy. She is. And um I think that's a great recipe for a sort of a marriage in a bookish house. Okay. We read each other's work and we, we edit each other's work. And we like each other's work, which is great. We went on a walk together. Um, I think possibly a day after I'd sent the manuscript to Claire. And I remember saying, I think this is going to be published. And if it's just, if we sell five or 10,000, I'll finally feel that all these years of effort have been worthwhile. It's out there and people are reading it. And... Um, I'm not going to end up on tranquilizers in a psychiatric hospital in my old age because I've wasted my entire life trying to write a novel and failing. Did it feel like it could be a risk? Increasingly, it felt a little bit like that because you're. I wasn't cutting my losses. I was. I was sticking. I was sticking at it, and writing another bad novel and another bad novel. You were still doing the children's work. I was still doing the children's work at the same time. It would fade. It would fade away over the next few years. Um, so the stakes were getting higher and higher with each book I'd sort of put my heart into and then thrown away and then a few days after that um, that walk and Soss and I talked about the book where was the walk? we were walking um, on Shotover okay uh, just outside the the ring road in Oxford one of the wonderful things about Oxford that the tourists don't know about okay uh, we're in just this is a, a footnote I need to walk to write Okay. And uh, I live in I live in Oxford. It's a fantastic city. But my favourite parts of Oxford, all the all the parts that the visitors to Oxford know absolutely nothing about. Okay. And I have to visit one of those pretty much every day. I am I am part novelist, part dog. Right. And um, if I haven't spent a good half hour among trees, okay. then my brain doesn't work properly. Right. If everything needs to be sort of shaken around in my head. Um, after that walk, a few days later, I had very, very peculiar and wonderful and um, discombobulating morning. I went to see Claire in London. We visited several publishers. Some of whom. This is 2002? Sorry? This is 2002? Is Almost certainly, yes. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the year before it was published. And I. I think we went to three or four publishers, and I can't remember who was who. I remember some of them had made a huge amount of effort, but all in the wrong direction. We went to one... I realised that people really, really wanted this book. We turned up at one publishers, and they got sort of themed mugs and pencils made. So I found myself sitting down with a sort of London Underground themed sort of pencil and tea mug. And I thought, this is a sign of how much you want the book, but it seems a very odd direction in which to spend your energy. Yeah. Um, and I think we hadn't yet reached Jonathan Cape and we were in the taxi and I vividly recall this So, and Claire was taking a phone call um, Arnie, her Bichon Frise was uh, drinking out of a saucer of water on the, in, the cab. In, the, in the cab and Claire was clearly having um, a conversation about, about the book and I, didn't, I couldn't work out what was, ha- what was happening and then she ended the phone call, and I said, so what was happening? She said, that's the, that's the Italian auction for the rights, which is happening now. 
and I felt as if I'd passed through some portal. Um, London uh, scrolling past outside the taxi, Arnie drinking from the saucer on my feet and publishers having a live auction for the rights to publish it in Italy. Mm -hmm. um, afterwards, people would say, you must be really pleased slash impressed slash satisfied, whatever. But my main memory is of feeling very, very wobbly. I often described it by saying, like many people, when I was a kid, I'd have dreams of being able to fly mm. in the car. If you were in the car these days on the motorway and your car actually started to fly, it would be absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And it's a bit like that. It was a bit like having your dream come true. And, but, but the dream coming true was, in fact, very disturbing. So, yeah, what was it like? I mean, we've talked to a number of writers like Peter Frankopan or Anthony Beaver who've mm. had these smash hit books and the experience of, of mm. writing that. What, what was it like? Or maybe if, if it's hard to explain the emotional terror, you know, are there any other particular vignettes that, that speak to what that experience was like in the years that followed? Well, there, there, there are bits. There are bits at different times. Initially, very oddly, oddly disturbing. Mm. Um, the corollary of that is that you can't, you can't really say it's disturbing because everyone expects you to think it's unequivocally good. Yeah. And in some sense, of course, it is. That's what that's what every, nearly every writer wants. You want that number of people to want to read your book. There's nothing negative about it at all. But to be thrust into that wholly different life straight away is very very disconcerting another aspect of it is that I mean, how many copies did it sell we don't know globally yeah. we know that in the uk from then until now we have sold over six million wow. okay. which is abs absolutely extraordinary yeah. and i suspect the same in the states and then that'll be topped up from around the world with a, a good number more um and then in the year after that, I found myself travelling to lots of places, talking about the book a lot. That I found incredibly tiring and dispiriting after a while. For a number of reasons. I'm not, I'm not, I like being at home. I don't like being in hotels in foreign cities on my own, sort of late at night. I'd rather be in my own bed, waking up, writing another book yeah. downstairs and, you know, walking on shot over. Um... I, I, enjoy, I don't enjoy being in those places. But also you get asked the same question. And you get asked the same question several hundred times. You start... You start to bore yourself with, it, with the best will in the world and however much you want to um, perform well for someone who's asking you similar questions. Yeah. Once you start hearing yourself on repeat, something, something starts to die inside you. A very important part of being a writer for me is the sense that you're trying to tell the truth, whatever that happens to mean in this particular context. But being interviewed repeatedly about the same book um, runs entirely counter to that. You're being asked to, as I said before, answer complicated questions with zippy, concise, entertaining answers. Yeah. And after a while, that starts to eat away at you. 
One thing we always ask everyone on the show is about money and how mm-hmm. money interfaces yep. with their writing life. From, as you said, genteel poverty before that, when this happens, how does it, how does that change? I mean, to be, to be as frank as you're comfortable talking about, but also over what period of time does that change come? I think I discovered... Um, I think you discover what kind of person you are, I think, if you suddenly have lots of money. What, what, what do you go out and buy the next morning? Um, I found out that, with a couple of small exceptions, it's not as important to me as I thought it might be. I mean, you can, we're now sitting in a, a very nice house. Yeah. Um, what I spend it on, we moved to a bigger house, yeah. a really nice house. But you know, I still got I've still got one VW people carrier outside. Yeah. We haven't got a second home in Cornwall. Don't send the kids to private school. Um, I mean, without I, again, without going into gruesome specifics, mm. could you have sort of retired and never done anything ever again on it? Or? Not straight away, but I think pretty soon after that. Yeah. Given given that I given that we haven't got hugely expensive tastes, I could have stopped. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the flip side of what you discover. You discover what your feelings are about money, but you discover what your feelings are about work. Yeah. And for me, almost immediately I realised it's the work that matters. Yeah. Um, it's however much money you get, and also however much adulation you get, or however many readers you have, you've got to get up in the morning and think, what do I do before lunch? Yeah. And for me, it's 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 it's... I have to make something new. I mean, we're sitting in a room which is sort of full of paintings that I've done as well. Yeah. Paintings, drawings, prints. I have to, If I haven't got to the end of the day without putting something new into the world, I'm restless, agitated. I'm like a dog in a hot car. And what's the afterlife in terms... You know, you, you write this book that's an enormous success. What's mm. it like writing the next book? I spend... It's quite hard negotiating this, but I um, spend a lot of time pretending that Curious Incident has never existed. Okay. It is, I, of course, of course, I am hugely grateful, but in it's psychologically very unhelpful thing. Yeah. I, I'd often describe it as one of the, lar- the world's largest gold-plated ball and chain. Right. And that's become even more the case since the stage production okay. uh, happened and then grew and then had many, many afterlives. I mean, at, at this moment, we, yesterday, uh, the new West End run was announced. So okay. Curious Incident is returning to the West End. It's had a world tour. Um, there's a schools tour happening now. A little bit of me feels embarrassed about the fact that I keep a distance from this. And I hope most of the people involved, particularly the new casts, understand that I can't carry on writing new things if I if my job remains the person who wrote Curious Incident. Yeah. I could I could go and see uh, a different show every week. I could go and meet every new cast. I could remain intimately involved. But you've got to let it go. I've got to let it go. I mean, I know Michael Morpurgo, yeah. for example, has remained quite involved with, with War Horse. War Horse. And yeah. I, as far as I know, he's appeared on stage in it, okay. in the chorus a couple of times. Okay. I've been very, very firm about not letting that happen. And in fact, when I, I took a vow about two years ago saying that, I don't mind people asking me questions about the book, but if I do um, any kind of interview or event, it's not primarily about 
curious. And, yeah. and, and after that point, I officially turned down any request to do events about curious or interviews about curious. And as soon as I'd made that decision, I could feel light and space entering my head again. Yeah. We're running up against our time, though. But could you talk briefly about your upcoming novel about paupers? Yes, it is. <laughs> I... This novel has a gestation period of about three years. And the seed was when Hogarth Press approached me saying, we are are going to publish a series of novels which are prose reworkings of Shakespeare's Mm -hmm. plays, which has indeed happened. And there are quite a lot out there. Hagsey by Margaret Atwood, for example, Howard Jacobson, Jeanette Winterson. I remember saying at the time that the initial remit was quite tight. Um, You need to give writers more space to create something of their own rather than being stuck to novelising the plot. And indeed, they did loosen up the remit quite a bit. I still didn't feel it was quite the right thing for me. Um, I didn't have the chutzpah to square up against a masterpiece of a play. Yeah. But it's, it's, it went round in my head. It nagged at me and nagged at me. And firstly, I thought, well, maybe I can take one of the less good plays. Take a bad Shakespeare Take play. a bad Shakespeare. That gives me more elbow room to do stuff with it. Um, and then I... Reread Pericles, and something jumped out at me. I'm really interested in what we might very loosely call old stories, whether it's you know from the Arthurian corpus or it's the Marburata or the Magdalenocchi or whatever. Um, two of the stories in the Pier Falls, the previous collection of short stories I did, were versions of Ariadne on Naxos, the myth, and Gawain and the Green Knight. Okay. And they were stories that I loved, but stories which had gaps in them, gaps that somehow needed filling. And in Pericles, there is a sort of a, a terrible gap. Pericles, the plot of Shakespeare Pericles, begins when the king of Antioch is raping his daughter. It's usually referred to as incest, incest by critics and in the play itself. Um, he can't marry her off because her husband will find out what's been going on. He can't not marry her off because everyone will work out what, wonder what's been happening. So he says anyone who uh, wants to marry his daughter must come along and answer a riddle. If they fail, their head will be cut off. Pericles comes along, he solves the riddle, and then he runs. He rejects this woman he wanted to marry because she's been having sex with the father. And he is chased across the Mediterranean. And the play, substantially, is the adventures he has while running away from this poor woman. Mm -hmm. And I thought, here's a woman who's not even given a name in the play. Her suffering is the engine that drives the whole plot. There's a gap in that play. There's, there's a whole human being's experience which has been missed out. And I'd really like to sort of get into that gap and flesh, flesh out that and sort of write a kind of moral wrong as well. Um, so that's what I've done. That makes it sound rather a small novel, but somehow, somehow, I've packed in more event than there is in the Shakespeare play. Okay. It, it gave me licence to write about... Plane crashes, pirates, sword fights, um, wrestlers, time travel, Scythian horsemen. I have... um, When the Pier Falls came out, my agent Claire said to me, Mark, you write novels in which nothing happens and short stories in which everything happens. Mm. I think I finally managed to work out how to write a novel in which everything happens. And I've enjoyed writing this book in a way that I have never wholly enjoyed writing a novel before. I think on that note, that's a very good place to draw this to a finish. So, Mark, thanks for being such a, a gracious and candid guest and wishing you all the best of luck with your projects going forward. Thank you. Thank you.
So Simon, how did you enjoy the interview with Mark? What did he say that surprised you? Well, I found it really fascinating. And I think um, it's again something that's become a bit of a running, running theme on the podcast that part of the reason I really enjoy doing these interviews is an opportunity just to get a sense with people who've had these these enormous successes of what that experience is like. So particularly with Mark, you know, he had had um, kind of wilderness years for a, for a long time doing weird gigs in children's TV and writing children's books that few people read. And then, you know, it, he'd written endless unpublished novels and then he had this enormous success. And I think what I draw from that is that you can't predict that kind of thing. You can't control it. And then also when it happens, like it totally transforms your life, but it also doesn't, that life goes on and, and all that kind of thing. So for purely selfish reasons, I find it extremely kind of enlightening to, to talk to people through that. And again, in something that's also been common on the show, that actually some of the, the, the grandest, as it were, people we've had on are often the most humble as well. So he was just a very kind and, and very gracious guy and we hope you enjoy it. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Eleanor Hall. Our producer is Nicola Keane, our communities editor is Zara Hankir, and our score is by Jess Danheiser, and James Edgar does our graphic design. You can follow us on social media. We are on uh, Take Notes Always on Twitter, and Always Take Notes on Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to leave a review, which we recommend you do, uh, it's on iTunes uh, under Always Take Notes. And if you fancy uh, contributing to our crowdfunding campaign, uh, it's on patreon.com slash always take notes. And I should say that any possible noises in the background are the lunchtime rush at Condé Nast where we're recording this <laughs> intro. We're running to it soon. Anyway, thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you.